I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. A Podcast One production. Last year, I decided it might be a good idea to put aside some money for my retirement. Investing on your own is always hard unless you're a professional because it's difficult to know if you're making the right investment calls. So I decided that I'd only invest in things that I understood and where I maybe had a personal relationship to someone in the businesses where I was investing. Back in 2014, I'd met one of the principals of a blockchain startup known as Ripple. She had just come from working at the U.S. Federal Reserve. She was very impressive. So I decided I could invest in the cryptocurrency Ripple. That same year, I met Joyce Kim, who started another cryptocurrency, Stellar. Kim hoped Stellar would help women working at subsistence jobs in the developing world earn more money for their work. So I decided to invest in that too. And then there was the basic attention token. I didn't know anyone directly connected to that, but I understood how it worked. And from that, I could see why it could be a big success. So I put some money in that too. Now, we're not talking a lot of money here. I started with just $200. About a month later, I invested another $100. And and that's not really an investment. That's a big night out. Now, when I put the money in, I knew I'd be well satisfied if it was earning, say, 10% a year, which is really a good sort of investment grade thing. It's better than I'd get from putting it into a bank account. And so I put the money in, and I forgot about it for three months. And at the beginning of December, I thought, oh, let me just check on it. Let me see how things are going. Turns out they were going very well. Insanely well. That $300 had ballooned to nearly $1,600. The prices of everything I'd invested in, Ripple, Stellar, and Basic Attention Token, they'd all gone up two, three, even as much as 10 times in three months. I should have been happy, delirious. After all, wasn't this why I invested to see a big return? Well, there's big, and there's too big. Returns too big, they should make you suspicious. Because going up by a factor of five in three months, that's not growth. That's winning the lottery. Now, there's nothing wrong with winning the lottery, but it's not a dependable source of income. Exactly the opposite of an investment. So I asked around to people I knew who understood investing, and they congratulated me on my win 
but they also understood my unease. Well, what should I do, I asked. They said, take what you invested off the table and take a fat profit. That way, you won't care what happens next. So I did that. My investment returned three times my initial investment. That's a nice fat profit. And for the rest of it, I watched in amazement in December and January as it swelled to almost $4,000 and then dropped and dropped and dropped. And today it's worth pretty much the 200 that I originally invested But I don't really care about the wins or the losses because I took the advice and took my money off the table. Happy ending for me. A lot of people lost their shirts because they wanted to believe prices would go up and up and up and never go down. They wanted to win the lottery. And they lost everything in a bubble of speculation, a bubble that formed because people saw folks like me who had won big. And people are greedy. And greed wrecks reason. People can't think straight when there's money on the line. They just want to believe it's true and that it will happen to them. But what if we knew enough to make better investments? What if it wasn't just guesswork, but investing based on fundamentals? That's how Warren Buffett does it. Buffett made his billions living by a simple rule of thumb. If I don't understand it, I won't invest in it. Very few people understand these new cryptocurrencies, things like Bitcoin and Ripple and Stellar, but millions have invested in them. They want to believe. But maybe if we learn a little bit more and believe a little bit less, we can be more rational with our investments and make better decisions. That's what this podcast series is all about. Hello, I'm Mark Pesci, and welcome to the first episode of Cryptonomics, a series dedicated to exploring and explaining the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, known as the blockchain, will transform our entire world. Along the way, we'll learn what it takes to make it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. We'll speak to folks who have built successful businesses using the blockchain, some of whom have even created their own cryptocurrencies. We'll learn how things work, why they work, and when they don't. By the time we're finished, you should understand enough to be able to make your own investment calls. You'll have the tools you need to investigate any cryptocurrency investment. Is it real? Is it wise? Is it a good investment? We can't answer these questions for you, but you'll learn the questions you need to ask and the sorts of answers you want to receive. But cryptocurrencies, they're only the tip of the iceberg. The whole field of blockchain isn't even a decade old, and yet it's already working its way into the core of some very established businesses. And it's being used as the foundation for some entirely new ones. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's touched by money, will be changed by this new technology. And that's why we're calling this series Cryptonomics. When you look beyond the ripples produced by the rise and fall in the price of Bitcoin, you can see another wave, a tsunami of change that will roll over banks, stock markets, even nations. Now, there's a lot of hype surrounding cryptocurrencies. Some of that hype is justified. It's a new way of doing business, and it will force businesses to make way for it. And it's not the first time this has happened. Welcome back to episode one of Cryptonomics. 
Over the first five episodes of Cryptonomics, we'll explore and understand how the new world of cryptocurrencies works, beginning with the basic technology that underpins all of Cryptonomics, the blockchain. The blockchain is the engine block of the crypto economy, the foundation upon which all of it rests. In this episode, we'll learn what a blockchain is and why it's such an improvement over the tools we've used before. In episode two, we'll take a look at the first and most well-known use of the blockchain, Bitcoin. Blockchain powers Bitcoin, and it's why people treat Bitcoin like real money. But blockchains have many other uses in agribusiness, insurance, even gambling. In episode three, we'll take a look at how blockchains in everyday use everywhere are already transforming our world. It's not just blockchains that are popping up everywhere. We've seen an explosion in the number of cryptocurrencies, all of them similar to Bitcoin, yet all of them just a little bit different. In episode four, we'll look at these initial coin offerings and ask a big question. What gives a coin value? In episode five, we'll look at the latest innovation in cryptonomics, smart money. This blending of computer code with cryptocurrency creates money that truly does have a mind of its own, money that can make its own decisions. But before we can take a look at where money is headed, we need to turn back, all the way back to the origins of civilization, writing, and bookkeeping. For in our origins, we see the signs of our destiny. The earliest fragments of writing go back nearly six thousand years to the fertile crescent of Mesopotamia, that's modern-day Iraq. Those first bits of writing we found, you know what they are? They're ledgers. They're lists of things that someone owns. Cattle and grain and hay and oil. Those are the sorts of things that would define you as wealthy 6,000 years ago. We started to write things down. At least this is what's supposed We started to write them down because we simply had too much to remember. How many head of cattle? How many bottles of oil? How many bushels of grain? And if you sell some of that to someone, how many to them? Human memory is great, but it's all too fallible. By 6,000 years ago, things had gotten complicated enough that we needed some system to keep track of things. So we made marks. Just as we do today when we make a tally. One, two, three, four, scratch. Six, seven, eight, nine, scratch. And these tallies, they evolved into cuneiform, the earliest form of writing. And the first example of that writing, it's a ledger. So not only does accounting go all the way back to the beginnings of civilization, it might be the original reason for writing. Now, the Sumerians who invented all of this, they did something very clever. They created these ledgers by making marks into a block of wet clay. And then they put the clay out into the sunshine to dry. Now, it regularly gets to 50 degrees. That's 120 Fahrenheit in that part of the world. So the clay bakes, the clay becomes hard, and all of a sudden that ledger is literally set in stone. There's no way to change it. There's no way to add or subtract from the number of cattle or the bushels of grain or the bottles of oil. It's a permanent record, and that's very useful because it means you can trust the record to be as accurate as the day it was made. And that means it can be trusted by a tax collector or used as evidence in a lawsuit. 
And yes, we have records of lawsuits going back pretty much that far. For as long as we've owned lots of things, we've had lawsuits about who owns what. So we get two things at once. We get this record of material wealth, what we call today a ledger, and we get the authentication of that ledger via a chemical change that transforms wet clay into a solid brick. And so these two innovations meant that the Sumerians and the Akkadians who followed them and basically just adopted everything they invented, that they had the material assurance to build the world's first great civilization. This is a thousand years before the Egyptians built the pyramids. This is 2,000 years before the Chinese built the Great Wall. This is 3,000 years before Rome conquered Europe. And in any of those civilizations, well, they didn't keep records on clay. They didn't bake those records into unchanging brick. And so they had to find other ways to assure people that their ledgers were accurate. Now, the Romans, the Romans used wax seals. That's a technology that was still in common use until a few hundred years ago. You seal up a document with wax. You stamp it with your seal. It was provably authentic unless someone forged your seal. Forgery was always a problem. We'll come back to that in episode two. But the biggest problem was simply keeping ledgers and ensuring these ledgers were accurate. By the time of the Romans, who were unimaginably wealthy by Sumerian standards, these ledgers could be very complex. Errors could creep in, and even worse, people could change them. This was so well known in Roman times that it even makes its way into one of the parables told by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, Well, what should I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. He told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. People have been cooking the books for as long as we've had books to cook. And people make mistakes doing the books. And those problems plagued businesses of all sorts from the beginning. And finally, almost 700 years ago, a solution to this problem came from Italy. It's known as double-entry bookkeeping. The idea behind double-entry bookkeeping is actually quite simple. When you keep a ledger, you keep track not just of what you own, those are the assets, but of what you owe, those are your liabilities. And both of these assets and liabilities should always balance perfectly. When there's an addition to the assets, there's a subtraction in liabilities. At every point, you should be able to take the list of assets, add it up, and then compare it to the list of liabilities, and they should always be exactly equal. If they're not equal, there's been a mistake in the accounting. But of course, that's okay because you can rewind the ledger, adding up assets and liabilities, looking for the last spot on the ledger where both of them balanced. And you know that the error happened 
after that point. And since you know that, you can repair the ledger so that it balances. And when we say balancing the books, this is what we mean, making sure the assets and liabilities both add up to the same value. Now, that might not seem like much of an innovation, but errors and fraud had plagued bookkeeping for thousands of years, and double-entry bookkeeping helped to limit those errors and frauds. It didn't completely remove fraud. It remained possible to cook the books by altering both assets and liabilities, but it made those ledgers far easier to inspect and to verify. It made finance more reliable, and that simple invention, it changed the world. Some might even say it created the world that we live in today. Now, that's not an exaggeration, because some of those Italians who first mastered the art of double-entry bookkeeping, they were moneylenders. Now, moneylending was never a terribly respectable profession, not when a mistake in your books could cost someone so much. But double-entry bookkeeping, it gave moneylending a new credibility and a new name taken from the benches those moneylenders sat on. In Italian, the word is banca. Meet the first bankers. Double-entry bookkeeping gave the world banking, and banking, well... That made the modern world, because without banks to lend and transfer money around the world, there wouldn't be much of a modern world. But with double-entry bookkeeping, a bank can always check the books on any of its potential clients to see if they're creditworthy, and anyone else can check the bank's books to see if they're going to be around long enough to cash that check they've written for your branch in a faraway colony. Pretty much everything, from bank checks to central banks, and central banks print the cash that's in your wallet, to credit cards and touchless payments, all of that's built on top of double-entry bookkeeping. It's hard to imagine a world without it. But it's not enough. And there are two stories that show us why it's not enough. Now, the first one is the story of Rwanda. Rwanda, the African nation, 20 years ago, they had a really nasty civil war that quickly evolved into a genocide, Tutsis against Hutus. They've come back from that. The two sides have reconciled. They're busily building one of the most exciting nations in East Africa. And in 2015, I went for a visit and I learned that although they have ambitions to become, as they call it, the Singapore of Africa... They can't get one of the things that they truly need to make that happen, a modern banking system. Now, in a country like Australia or the United States, everyone has a bank account. Certainly every business has a bank account. In a developing nation like Rwanda, hardly any individual has a bank account. And only the largest businesses do. Why? Because it's expensive to keep the books balanced. Even with the help of computers, there's a lot of maths and a lot of checking and balancing to make sure everything is in good order. And that's true both for the banks and for the businesses that the banks would do business with. The vast majority of those businesses are small. They don't earn much money. And while they have need for a bank, maybe they want a line of credit or they want a safe place to deposit their cash every evening... Those businesses don't generate enough revenue for the bank to cover the cost of accounting. It's a losing proposition. So those businesses are effectively cut off from banking because the banks can't afford them as customers. 
That's the first story. Now, the second story is the sad tale of the investment firm Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers kept books, had those books checked, audited by Arthur Anderson, great big accounting firm. Yet in September 2008, Lehman Brothers collapsed. Liabilities overwhelmed its $600 billion in assets. Liabilities that should have been plainly obvious to its auditors. Those auditors, well, they soon went out of business themselves, and they weren't the only unlucky firms. The Lehman Brothers collapse kicked off the global financial crisis. For a while, it was believed that the entire banking system might go down the tubes with Lehman Brothers. In the last quarter of 2008, the whole global system of banking and finance tottered at the edge of an abyss. But in the middle of this financial hurricane, something truly novel came to light. Something no one had seen before. Something that could, perhaps, set all of this to rights. It was an academic paper, although these days we'd call it a white paper because it wasn't published in a prestigious academic journal. It was simply posted to the internet by its author, Satoshi Nakamoto. The paper describes something called a peer-to-peer electronic cash system that it named Bitcoin. But before we get into Bitcoin, and we'll get there soon enough, we need to have a good look at the reason this is so important in the story of banking. Electronic cash, that's no big deal. We've had that in different forms. Even in 2008, we'd had it in different forms for 15 years. The paper described a new way of keeping the books, a new mechanism for accounting, something even better than double-entry bookkeeping, better because it's both harder to falsify and cheaper to maintain. Let's take a look at how it works. I've just returned from a trip to Tokyo and I have heaps of travel receipts. I'm going to file an expense report. That expense report is going to contain my receipts. So I lay them out and snap a photo of them with my smartphone. Now I want to put a seal on those receipts so they can't be tampered with. The seal is technically called a hash value. And if you want to learn more about how that hash value works, just visit our website. We'll give it to you in all the detail you would ever want. Okay, so we seal the receipts with the hash value. That tells us that these receipts are authentic. And then we put that expense report aside. A bit later, I take a trip to Melbourne. I come home. I lay out all of my receipts. But before I snap that photo, and here's the important bit. You'll see why in a moment. I put the Tokyo seal next to those receipts so that I'm taking a photograph of that in addition to my Melbourne travel receipts. Now, once again, I will seal these receipts with a new hash value. And then I'm off to Vegas. I come home. I lay out all of my receipts. But before I take a photo of them, I put the Melbourne seal next to them to make sure that's part of the photo as well. And remember that the Tokyo seal is inside my Melbourne seal. So now you can see that all three are linked together in a chain, almost like a photo within a photo within a photo. I've chained them together with these seals. That's the origin of the term blockchain. We're chaining these seals together in a way that makes it nearly impossible to change anything. Because if you do, the seals won't look the same and it's easy to check for that. 
So now, instead of having a list of assets perfectly balanced against a list of liabilities, that's how accounting has always worked. Instead, you can have this chain of linked blocks, this blockchain, guaranteeing that every entry is accurate and none of them have been tampered with. Everyone gets to check to see if it all balances. It's cheap to do that. A computer program can handle it. An app for your smartphone can handle it. The proof is solid. You can bank on it. You can even build a bank on it. And suddenly, a lot of the need for all of the careful checks and balances that banks and auditors provide, that need vaporizes. That's the theory anyway. And so far, the theory seems solid. But changing the way banking and accounting work, that is not an overnight affair. Even 10 years isn't long enough to see much change, although change is bubbling away underneath and out of sight. When we come back, we'll talk to someone who's been working with blockchain almost from the beginning. His story is one of cryptonomics. Although technically all of this goes back to October in 2008, most people did not start using any of these technologies or Bitcoin until the early years of this decade. And one of the first people that I know who was working with this was Mark Jeffrey. Mark has a background in technology that goes back 25 years and has a background as an entrepreneur. And all of this came together with his interests as a writer and explainer. But I'll let him tell you in his own words. The first time I heard about Bitcoin technically was in 2011. I used to work with a guy named Jason Calcanis, and he has a show called This Week in Startups. And he had someone on there. I don't even remember who it was uh, at this time, but that certain person was talking about Bitcoin and describing it. And I, I listened to a lot of his shows, and I remember this moment specifically. I, I'm not really sure why it still sticks out, but I remember it. And I remember Jason's reaction, and maybe that was the thing that stuck with me. And he said, this is the most dangerous idea I've ever heard. And uh, sometime in really 2013 is when I noticed Brock Pierce and uh, another guy named Michael Turpin, uh, both people who are very, very different kinds of people, uh, and both people I respect for for different reasons. Um, And both of them were very excited about this Bitcoin thing and cryptocurrency. And so I kind of had this moment where I was like, I better, you know, I better have a second look at this. So, so I did. And I started trying to actually uh, puzzle out how it worked as an engineer. Uh, Because as you know, I have an engineering background. So I, I, you know, I read through all of the documents and it, it took me, even with an engineering background, it took me a while to kind of get or understand Grok deeply what I was seeing because um, it was very unlike anything else that had come before and I found myself scratching my head going but but where are the bitcoins stored you know I was asking <laughs> questions like that and uh, I don't know at some point after reading enough uh, enough of it it clicked and I suddenly saw a picture in my head and I was like oh that's what this is and I, I realized I, I kind of had this moment where I was like oh my god this is like it's sort of like Napster but um, it, it, but enough different and with money you can have items that are rare you can enforce scarcity for the first time in a fully distributed way and the first obvious application of that was money but there are a lot of other things that are scarce also that you could enforce and have you could have digital scarcity on the internet for the first time without a centralized authority controlling it all or ruling over it and I just suddenly went oh my god this is probably more important than the internet itself 
but I must be insane because why am I the only one thinking this? I, I must be wrong. And that was sort of uh, my initial reaction to it. And then uh, maybe a week or two later, after I, I first had this sort of aha moment, Mark Andreessen uh, published a little piece in the New York Times where he was saying very much the same sorts of things that I was thinking. I saw that article and I went, oh, Andreessen thinks the same thing. I'm not insane. There's somebody else out there who's, uh, you know, someone very smart and very well respected who's, who's thinking these same thoughts. At that moment, I no longer had any doubts. And I knew that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency was going to be a very, very big and important thing. So once I, once I understood what I was seeing, the very first reaction I had was, oh my God, I have to tell everybody else. Uh, <laughs> there is no, I felt because of my own difficulties in understanding it initially, even as an engineer, um, everything was drenched in so much crypto mysticism that it was almost impenetrable. And I felt that no one had really, in English, for the average person, described what this was and what it meant. So as you know, I'm an author also in my kind of other life writing novels and such. So um, theoretically, I can write, and I also understand engineering things. So I said, I'm one of the very few people right now at this nexus of time um, who has the skills necessary, I think, to write a really good, short, simple explanation of this. So I wrote a book called Bitcoin Explained Simply, and it's a very, very short book. I wrote it in 2013. I wrote it very fast. I wrote it in like two weekends and threw it up you know, using the uh, Amazon Kindle self-publishing, and then um, a bunch of people bought it. It took off. A lot of people sort of learned about Bitcoin for the very first time uh, through that book. Um, so that was great. Then the big crash happened um, where Mt. Gox uh, lost a lot of people's money, and uh, Bitcoin, the price of it was around $1,200, and then it crashed down to about 200 bucks. Um, even down as low as about 160 at one point. So at that point, a, a lot of people that had just started to get over the hump of believing lost all faith and went, oh, you know what? This is just garbage. There's nothing here. This will never go anywhere. It's, it's all been a mirage. And um, I looked at that and I said, no, this is just a momentary blip. We've, you know, if you've been around the technology world long enough, you've seen these ups and downs. I was like, this is just a down. And um, so I wrote another book called The Case for Bitcoin. And that was all about why Bitcoin, it was just mathematically almost you know, inevitable that it was going to ascend again and it was going to become a store of value specifically above and beyond any other store of value that humanity has ever seen. It basically has all the characteristics of gold, but you can email it effectively. You can send as much of it to as you want anywhere in the world you know, within 10 minutes, almost free. So I looked at that and I, I wrote that book. And in that book, I made kind of a wild claim, uh, which I believed, and I still believe, uh, which is that Bitcoin will eventually, each coin will eventually be worth 500K. And I show all work on that. I basically assume that it replaces some reserve currencies in the world, uh, the Swiss franc, you know, some gold, something. I had like this sort of a combination of things that I thought was a very conservative and, and reasonable assumption to make. So, um, and since then, um, some other folks have come out with that exact number uh, of 500K per coin, um, maybe about a year or two later. So other people kind of arrived there um, using different methods, but it's interesting that we all kind of ended up at the same place. Not long ago, I heard a story from a friend who'd spent some time in cryptocurrency, even did a little investing. And because she wanted to make educated decisions, she went along to a lot of the meetups that are held about cryptocurrency. And at the last meeting she went to, a fellow took the floor and he spoke of how he discovered cryptocurrencies 
in 2017. He'd speculated he'd done very well. Finally, he made the decision to quit his job and trade cryptocurrencies full-time, and he did it for a few months and made a bundle of cash, reckoned that he'd made the right call. And then the crash came. And it wasn't just a dip. It was the real deal. Prices fell. They kept falling and falling and falling, and he lost everything. So, he asked the room, does anyone know if there's a job available? Because... I'm going back to work. My friend said that took a lot of guts to front up in that room to admit that it hadn't worked and asked for help. And with those kinds of guts, he'll probably do well. But he learned a lesson a lot of people learned in 2018. There's no free lunch. Prices don't rise forever. Eventually, everything falls back to earth. And you know what? Falling back to earth isn't the worst thing in the world. Back on earth... We can be grounded. We can make decisions carefully, rationally, not driven by madness or greed or fear of missing out. We can simply take advantage of the opportunities blockchain offers, rethinking banking and finance and accounting. That's really what's going to be going on over the next billion seconds. In episode two of Cryptonomics, we take a look at Bitcoin. Why do people treat it like money? What's so special about money anyway? And how does the blockchain fit into all of this? We'll answer all of that, then speak to someone who's made Matza running a Bitcoin exchange, a place where Bitcoins can be bought and sold. That's on the next episode of Cryptonomics. If you want to learn more about the topics we've explored in this episode or hear more from our guest, Mark Jeffrey, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production by Matt Nikolic. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.